We are Martin and Angela Beeson. Today we're going to read scriptures for you. I'm starting with Chinese. 当那日在埃及地中必有为耶和华住的一座坛在埃及的边界上必有为耶和华立的一根柱这都要在埃及地为万军之耶和华做记号和证据埃及人因为受人的欺压哀求耶和华他就差遣一位救主做护卫者拯
Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Gertner, and um, my wife, Leah, and I have uh, been living in China for 17 years now. Um, been a part of this uh, capital community for about three. I'm very excited to, to share God's word with you this morning. Um, start off with this. I can be a sucker for a good deal. Or at least what looks like a good deal at the beginning. Uh, my wife, Leah, and I, were, we were married back in 2001. Beautiful ceremony, lovely time, and then we were off to our, our honeymoon in Mexico. So we were having a wonderful time at one of those all-inclusive resorts, you know, relaxing after all the stress and anticipation of the big day. Well, at this resort, they offer you a few more perks if you take one of these tours, you know, around the property, and they give you a, a sales pitch to buy into a, a timeshare. So it was with great enthusiasm that our guide shared with us what a good idea it would be to purchase this timeshare at this resort. Now, I should probably mention that Mexico is quite a ways from Richmond, Virginia, where, where our home was. Um, and moving to China was in our plans for the near future. So nice place, but uh, expensive and really impractical. Well, our guide was not to be thwarted. He started raising some actually really existential questions to get us to think about how this timeshare could answer them in our lives. Um, he said, you know, we don't know how long we have on this earth. We don't know where we're going when we die. And then, you know, being a good Christian, I, I stopped and said, well, we know where we're going when we die. And he comes right back and says, yeah, but in this life, you need vacations. <laughs> Touché. Well... Uh, I had no great response to that, but uh, we really couldn't get around the $30,000 price tag, and so he started cutting the price. Um, but even when it was significantly less, you know, no deal. That's when it got serious. They brought in the closer. Now, he was, he was kind of the bad cop to the other guy's good cop. He, he was big and muscular, serious-faced. He was all business. He said, what is it that's stopping you? from buying this. He said, well, uh, money, time, distance. What if I cut the price to 4000 I started doing the math in my head. I started thinking about flight routes, calendar dates. What a deal. Leah, maybe we could make this work. Her response, seriously? Well, I'm glad Leah was with me that day. Um, maybe I didn't make the best of first impressions in our new married life, but um, thanks for sticking with me, Leah. A sucker for a good deal. Now, the people of Judah and Israel, during the time of Isaiah, were tempted what, with what seemed like a good deal. But the stakes were much higher. Instead of the promise of better vacations, it was the threat of a world-dominating empire. And the destruction of their nation, this drove them to find a solution. So the bully was knocking at their door. And this bully was the Assyrian Empire. They were known for their, their cruelty and their power. Um, its rulers sometimes had their captives led away with fish hooks in their mouths. And so to protect themselves from the new bully at school, well, the Israelites and Judah, they, they went to the old bully, Egypt. The nation that had enslaved their ancestors for 400 years. The nation that God had rescued them out of with, with great wonders. 
Now, Egypt wasn't the only nation that Judah or Israel had sought security in. Throughout the Old Testament, we see it repeatedly emphasized to God's people. Your security is not in alliances you form with other nations. Trust in me for your protection. When I judge you for your sin, turn back to me. The people of Judah at times, uh, they, at this time, they had done some turning back to the Lord, but it, it wasn't always wholeheartedly. Now, Isaiah's ministry actually took place under four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So then, if you look in your Bible back to the beginning of chapter 19 in Isaiah, it's most likely that those prophecies against Egypt there, um, they were going on either in the late reign of Ahaz or the early reign of Hezekiah. Now, Ahaz, he was an idol worshiper. During his reign, the northern kingdom... Israel, they had formed an alliance with with the nation of Syria against Judah. Now, despite this, God even says to him, to paraphrase, Ahaz, you're not doing a great job here. But ask me for a sign, any sign, and I'll give it to you. I will show you that I am going to protect Judah. Now, Ahaz then puts on this air of religiosity and says, oh, oh no, I, I would never put the Lord to the test, right? So Ahaz rejected the Lord's offer of protection, and instead he sought protection by courting the Assyrian Empire. So Judah then became a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire, meaning every year they had to pay large sums of money as tribute to the Assyrian Emperor. Now, when Hezekiah became king, it was under this burden of being a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire. Now, Hezekiah He ruled from about 715 B.C. to 686 B.C. Hezekiah was one of what we call the good kings of Judah. He was known as a restorer of true worship. He helped get rid of idolatry. Under his reign, Judah, they celebrated a Passover, this, this festival of remembering the deliverance God provided for them from Egypt. And they celebrated it like they had not done in many, many years. But Hezekiah, from time to time, he was tempted to go to other nations to try to make military alliances. So in 701 B.C., uh, Hezekiah, he actually rebelled against the Assyrian Empire after the death of the emperor Sargon. So Sargon's son, Sennacherib, he is the emperor at this time, and Hezekiah rebels against him. So in 2 Kings 18, we see the Assyrian siege commander. He's, He's telling Judah... Don't think Egypt is going to deliver you. He calls Egypt that splintered reed of a staff, like a broken stick, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. So God's chosen nation, looking to, Israel, to, I'm sorry, looking to Egypt for protection, a good deal? Well, thankfully, we see Hezekiah turn to the Lord for help during these threats, and the Lord intervenes and saves them. So we go down to the Egypt slide here. Um, From the beginning of Isaiah chapter 19, we'll look at the next one. Um, It's this section of of prophecy of judgment upon Egypt. Now, it's it's an economic, political, and religious unraveling of the nation of Egypt. Looking at it, you'll find actually quite a few parallels between it and the Exodus narrative. Um, The Nile River, for example, this was the foundation of the Egyptian economy. 
it's going to be rendered bankrupt. You know, in the Exodus, the river had turned to blood. Here in Isaiah, it's to be dried up. And there was this ultimate inability of, of their magicians, their prophets, their priests to do anything about this. They were powerless before the face of the Lord. The, they were oppressed and things only got worse. Now, their descendants, um, this is talking about Israel here, their descendants were tempted to put their hope in Egypt to deliver them from Assyria. So then looking at chapter 20 in Isaiah, right after this passage, Isaiah, he's given this assignment to do this almost kind of performance art for three years. He, he's to walk around naked as a sign against Egypt and Cush, of which the people of the coastlands around Israel, they were tempted to hope in Egypt to deliver them from the Assyrian Empire. And they were to say, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped, led away naked like captives, as captives. And we, how shall we escape? So what looks like a good deal doesn't always turn out to be. So in the midst of all this, I find it shocking of this passage that talks about Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. So whereas in the preceding section, we saw almost this recapitulation of the plagues of Egypt in Exodus. Starting in verse 19, we see what almost seems like Egypt experiencing the same relationship with God that Israel could enjoy. We're told of an altar for sacrifice. We're told of pillars of remembrance for remembering God's mighty acts. We're told of oppressors who will come against them. And then the Egyptians crying to the Lord and the Lord sending a deliverer to them. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot what's like happening, for example, through the book of Judges. We see Egypt knowing the Lord and worshiping with sacrifice and offering, making vows to the Lord. There's a committed relationship here. A relationship with God that disciplines them for their own good and and to draw them, to draw them to himself. God strikes them, but heals them. They cry out. And he listens. So in the Exodus narrative, we we get this picture of, of sometimes our thought is, okay, the Lord struck Egypt, the Israelites were free, and that's that. Though a few Egyptians actually did join with the Israelites in leaving in the Exodus. But in this passage, God looks forward to the Lord striking Egypt, and they turn to him. He strikes and heals. We often have this uncomfortable notion of this um, notion of God striking and healing. Now, we, we, sometimes we want him to strike our enemies and to heal us, but it seems like this, that God is doing both to both. I'm reminded of uh, one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia stories, The Horse and His Boy. It's the story of Shasta, who was an orphan. Uh, he became an escaped slave, and uh, who along his journey to freedom, he discovers his true heritage. And throughout this journey, he, he, from time to time, has these frightening, mysterious encounters with what seems like a group of lions that are hunting him from every side. And toward the end of the journey, after a lion has actually struck his traveling companion, Erebus, uh, Shasta, he has this up-close and personal encounter with the lion. And if you're unfamiliar with the Narnia stories, the lion is Christ in that world. And so a section from it reads like this. This is Shasta speaking. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. 
one who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Once more Shasta felt the warm breath of this thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck meeting so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two in the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And Shasta gasped with an open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad, too. Now, Erebus, she was the daughter of a noble in another kingdom. Uh, she had wound up on this journey, actually, by escaping her governess, uh, by putting her governess into this drugged sleep. So later on in the book, Erebus has her encounter with Aslan. Draw near, Erebus, my daughter. See, my paws are velveted. You will not be torn this time. This time, sir? said Erebus. It was I who wounded you, said Aslan. I am the only lion you met in all your journeyings. Do you know why I tore you? No, sir. The scratches on your back, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on your back, on the back of your stepmother's slave, because of the drugged sleep you cast upon her. You needed to know what it felt like. Yes, sir, please. Ask on, my dear, said Aslan. Will any more harm come to her by what I did? Child, said the lion, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. So the author of these books, C.S. Lewis, uh, elsewhere wrote that God whispers to us through our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, 
but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The Lord strikes and the Lord heals. Now, plenty of scripture from the book of Job to the words of Jesus himself teach us that not every bit of suffering that we experience happens to us as a direct strike from God because of some sin that we've committed. But ask yourself, in your sufferings in life, do you complain and and feel like God must be far from me? Or are you crying out to God to heal? And do you draw near to him in that suffering? The Lord heals, and he wants you to know him. So in verse, in, uh, verse 23, we things, see things turning for the better. We can look at the next slide. Not just for Egypt, but for the bully, for Assyria. It speaks of a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. A highway connecting two nations like this, especially in the ancient world, it's only possible when there's peace between them. So this, is, this highway is a symbol of peaceful interaction. And this, this uh, interaction, it's not just for economics, it's not just for politics, it's for worship. They will be together in worship. It says, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And this really shouldn't be a surprise to us, given the overall vision in the Hebrew Bible of all the nations coming to worship the Lord. And it was Israel's mission to be this shining example of a nation who worships and serves the Lord, though they largely failed in that mission. Abraham, he was told that through his offspring, offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that promise has not failed. But I cannot help but have my jaw drop when I come to verse 24 and read, In that day Israel will be third, be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. It almost looks as if the Lord is giving equal status in the kingdom to non-Jews. In fact, there's evidence in, that the Jewish people in the centuries that followed this, uh, this prophecy, that they found this shocking as well. Um, we even see in the Septuagint, so this was the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament made in the second century B.C., um, the way that it renders this passage. You know, whereas the Hebrew manuscripts, they say, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands. In the Greek translation, it puts this as, Blessed be my people who are in Egypt and in Assyria. It's as if the text were saying, Well, there are some Jews or Israelites who are in Egypt, and there's some who are in Assyria. Those Jews and Israelites are blessed. And there's a real difference between saying that and saying, Blessed be Egypt, Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands. Now, not all this reluctance in the translation necessarily came from a lack of desire to see these nations converted. Uh, There may well have been uh, this cautionary move to avoid syncretism or to avoid saying, like, 
oh, you know, these gods that the Egyptians or Assyrians worship or all these religious practices, they're, they're just the same and so, so we're all okay. They wanted to avoid that. It's not true. Um, these nations, they needed to turn from idols to serve the living God. But some evidence also shows that in, in the centuries building up to the time of the coming of Christ, Judaism really did develop sort of this, what you could call this restriction of Isaiah's vision. Judaism at the time used what was called the Targum, these Aramaic language paraphrases of the Old Testament they used for synagogue readings. And these really did have kind of a restriction on Isaiah's vision. Instead of this radical ushering of the Gentile nations into God's kingdom, for them it became more and more about being Jewish. So I invite you to read through the Gospels from this perspective. Read through the book of Acts. Read through the epistles with this in mind. That there were some Jewish leaders who were furious at this idea of Gentiles being welcomed into the people of God without having to keep all the law of Moses. And yet, in Isaiah, here it is. Two oppressive empires being welcomed into God's family. Now, if you look at, the, at history and the centuries following these prophecies, you're not going to find a time in which Egypt and Assyria in mass converted to Judaism. Okay? I think the most helpful approach to prophecies like this in Isaiah is look at the trajectory that they're setting. The big bad empire turning to the Lord. The past its time empire, the useless wannabe hero turning to the Lord. Later in Isaiah, we see eunuchs okay, who under the law, they were excluded from temple worship. But it says that the time will come when they will be given a heritage better than that of sons, and God will accept their sacrifices, and that they would be joyful in his house of prayer. The trajectory is come on in, all you peoples. Um, verse 25 has the Lord calling Israel my inheritance. And this is not the only place in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, where we see God's people called an inheritance. Deuteronomy 32.9 says, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance, an inheritance of God. Now, normally we think of inheritance as something a person receives after his parents dies or, or, or an other relative dies. Um, in the ancient world, an inheritance, it was a vital part of sustaining the economy of a family. It was something treasured. And Israel was that treasured possession of the Lord. Then the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it has a lot to say about inheritance. Paul told the Ephesians that when they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they received the promised Holy Spirit who's a down payment guaranteeing their coming inheritance in the kingdom, in his kingdom. And just before that, Paul wrote in verse 11, in him... We have received an inheritance, and that's how most English translations put it. Now, in Greek, received an inheritance, that's all one word. That's eklerothamen, which is a verb. It's in the passive voice, and it means appointed by lot. And it can just as legitimately be translated, have become an inheritance. We have become God's inheritance. Christ's body, the church, has become God's treasured possession. In fact, as I recently read the book of Ephesians, I was struck at how this letter is all about being one in Christ, Jew 
and Gentile. Paul says in, in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery hidden for ages is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. We are God's inheritance, and Christ has torn down the dividing wall. Now, a word of caution is need here. Sometimes in, in our enthusiasm about unity in the body of Christ, we might be quick to say, well, color doesn't matter. Okay, I, I never see color. But, well, ultimately it doesn't matter. But what we might be communicating, especially from someone like me, a white male North American, what we might be heard as communicating to my brothers and sisters of a different color is your experience doesn't matter. I'm deaf and blind to the suffering that you've experienced. Now, that's something entirely different from unity in Christ. That's really just not being a good friend. So learn to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I'm reminded of a time about five years ago. Uh, God did a work in me through a book called Just as Good. Um, and I read this just a few days after I had had surgery to reconstruct part of my knee. And that's what happens when a 34-year-old guy thinks he can go out and play American football again. Anyway, um, stick to baseball, right? Um, here's some excerpts from a blog post that, that I wrote about this right after it happened. Yesterday afternoon, I was sad. Now, sad is a word we often only use with children. It and happy, they're usually the first two emotion words that kids use. But we tend to move on to other words as adults. I started getting emotional, thinking about things that I had wanted to do with my children this summer. Things that we're more able to do in the U.S. I kind of got desperate thinking about trying to pull off something, even in the hobbling, time-crunched next couple months. And then my wife and kids came home. Now, the last few nights, me waking up in the middle of the night hadn't really helped Leah get a good night's rest. So after getting home, Leah informed me that her mom had arranged for a stay for her in a hotel for a night. I started to get a little broken up about that. I would miss her. So I wanted to do something with my son Austin, who was five at the time. But our normal activities of playing ball or wrestling... Um, that wasn't an option. Uh, Austin, want to read a book with me? A chapter of uh, The Horse and His Boy? Coincidence, huh? Um, no, I don't want to read. I'm just going to go play. I cried. I don't remember the last time I cried, though I couldn't tell if Austin could tell I was crying. It may have been all those posts, all the drugs and all that. No, I guess I can't blame that. Um, Leah finally persuaded Austin to read. She said, why don't you read just as good? It's a baseball book. Okay. Leah informed me that just as good is a longer book, so I would need to be the one reading to him. It turns out just as good is the story of Larry Doby, the first American League Major League Baseball player to break the color barrier in the late 1940s. 
The story is told from the perspective of a young African-American boy and his dad listening to Dobie's Cleveland Indians World Series game on the radio. And I had a hard time making it through reading the book. On about the first page, I had to explain to Austin that there was a time in which people with black skin were not allowed to play baseball in the major leagues. I told Austin, sometimes people won't even be friends with someone because of the color of their skin. Why? In my sadness, all I could muster out was, because of sin. I especially got choked up at parts where the boy and his dad, and the boy would, would assure his son, change is coming. I somehow made it through the book. Thanks for choosing that one, Leah. Um, minutes later, I sarcastically commended her on her choice of books, giving, given my emotional state, and she smilingly apologized. Um, recently, I was talking with a friend about how over the, last, over the last few years, I've been doing really well in regard to not suffering from depression, which I've suffered from at times. But I shared with him that it's also a struggle and that I don't want to stand emotionally aloof from the suffering of the world and the brokenness of the world. I want to be an agent of healing in the world. One needs, you know, to a certain extent to share in its sorrow. And I've found that through my surgery recovery, God has been reopening a tender spot for compassion for my family, for sensing the tenderness of his father love for me. The world is broken, but God has done something about it. His son was broken for the world. I've been feeling that, both happy and sad. And that's the end of that blog post. So the story of black Americans being excluded from Major League Baseball, in many ways that's light years away from other nations being excluded from the community of God's people. Larry Doby, indeed, he was just as good and he deserved to be in the Major Leagues just as much as the white players. Now, in God's family, no one gets in because they are just as good. That's not why Egyptians, that's not why Assyrians, that's not why Greeks or anyone else is let in. Those nations were disobedient to God, and they didn't deserve it. But Paul says in Romans 11 that God has bound all over to disobedience, that he might have mercy on them all. Israel wasn't brought in because they were better than anyone else. They were brought in by God's grace. They were brought in to be, like verse 24 says, a blessing in the midst of the earth. They were blessed to be a blessing, just like it was told to Abraham. But they were tempted to turn it into this clique. Now, if you tend to view your citizenship in God's kingdom just as something about privileges for yourself or privilege privileges for those who are just like you, then you need to lift up your eyes. Jesus Christ died so that his blood might wash away your sins and bring you to God. He died to tear down the walls. You, we, in Christ are blessed to be a blessing, both here and in the whole earth. So take that message for yourself. Let's make sacrifices to the Lord, not with altars of stone, but spiritual sacrifices, offering all that we do to the Lord as we present our bodies, plural, to him as a living sacrifice, singular. 
Let's do this as individuals. Let's do this as a church. Let's do this as the body of Christ. Let's take this awesome message to all the nations. And let any suffering that we experience in this process, let's let it draw us closer to our Father in heaven. And that, my friends, is a good deal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your tender mercies. We even, by faith, thank you for the ways we've been stricken. Because you know, and we know a little bit, that you work all things together for good, for those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. And uh, pray you would lift up our eyes and help us grow in having your heart for the nations, the heart of Jesus for them. We present ourselves to you. Please fill us. In Jesus' name, amen.